Just reading a couple statements. I am who you think I think. Sorry. It's a tongue twister, so even I have to think about it. I am who I think you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. Then God said, let, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I want to talk about identity this morning. The definition of identity is the fact of being who or what a person is. So the first statement that I just read, the tongue, the tongue twister, I am who I think you think I am, comes from uh, the looking glass self theory. It's a sociological theory developed by a Mr. Cooley in the early 1900s. It's still currently used. It's still currently uh, built, you know, we build off definitions and concepts still off of this concept. And Mr. Cooley came up with it to explain how a person forms their identity based on how others perceive them. So, there's a lot more to this theory, and we're not going to go into it, but captured in a sentence, Mr. Cooley's theory, the looking glass self, is, I am who I think you think I am. So, <clears throat> to kind of get an idea, because I, when I think about it, I get kind of confused. Anybody else kind of lost in that sentence? just a sentence, but I, I'm kind of lost. So if you picture yourself, imagine yourself in a group of people somewhere, could be church, could be work, could be your family, and imagine that everyone's holding a mirror, and each mirror is reflecting back to you what you think each person thinks of you in that moment. And this is kind of the simplest way to think about it. Being in a group of people, everyone's holding a mirror that's reflecting back what you think they think about you. But that second statement I read was from the book of Genesis, out of chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. And it was recorded on the sixth day of creation. God spoke these words, and humankind, both male and female, were spoken into existence. I want to read these same two verses out of the message translation. I don't know if Sister Leela's just getting to me, but she's been reading a lot out of that in her sermons. And the message really draws out um, some things that I want us to focus on in this Genesis passage. So the same passage, Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27, in the message translation. God spoke, let us make human beings in our image. 
make them reflecting our nature. So they can be responsible for the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the cattle, and yes, the earth itself, and every animal that moves on the earth. God created human beings. He created them God-like in the likeness of God, reflecting God's nature. He created them male and female. So I like that message translation because not only does it say that we're made in the image of God, but it emphasizes that God made us to reflect his nature. Both male and female were created to reflect the image of God. So to stay consistent with this mirror analogy, each of us would be holding a mirror because we're all created to reflect just that one thing, the image of God. So then, how come our identity has become so muddled? How we form our identity and, you know, the source from which uh, it comes from is very important because, you know, a person's value and worth is determined by our identity. It's determined by how we see ourselves and what defines us. And this morning, I kind of asked that question, Why do we put our faith and our confidence in something as uncertain as what we think that others think of us? It's a perception. It's a guessing game. It's not certain. It's not fact. So we start to find the answer to this question in Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, And since then, our ability to perceive ourselves as God intended is a result of that sin that shattered the image that our mirrors were really meant to reflect. Can I have my mirror slide, please? There we go. Can you tell I have an almost five-year-old girl? Here's my, uh, my, my choice in a shattered reflection. <clears throat> Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Um, so, have you ever looked into? Have you ever looked into a broken mirror, and looked at what image that a broken mirror reflects? You know, I mean, ladies or even men, would you trust doing your hair in front of that? You know, uh, would you trust looking at if your outfit all put together looks right in that reflection? You know, probably not because. A broken mirror just cannot, it's, it, it, it's not capable uh, of reflecting a true image back. So theories like the looking glass self theory, you know, kind of point to the same problem. How can we, as humans, in our brokenness, draw our identity and our value and our worth from the brokenness of others? So, because brokenness reflects brokenness. You know, it's all it can do. It's just, it's just all it can do. It's just a fact. And we just cannot perceive our, or reflect a true identity from a broken image. If I could have my title slide. So, identity and how that's defined 
if rooted in a Genesis 3 world, that's the, the post-sin world, looks like something like the looking glass self-theory. I am who I think you think I am. So my sermon title this morning, I want to draw from the Genesis 1 passage, Before Sin Entered the World, to remind us uh, from where our true identity really stems from. So this morning, let's all say together, I am who God knows I am. Amen. Uh, I usually spend the month of January, um, you know, the church used to do a, here at Newark UPC, we used to do a, a church-wide fast, you know, you kind of choose it for the month of January, and so um, it's not necessarily something that is what we all partake in together anymore necessarily, but it used to be something that, you know, we would kick off the new year with and whatever, and I've kind of kept that because it's just, you know, kind of good to discipline yourself. And so usually for the month of January, um, I try to uh, read more, um, you know, turn off the TV at night or whatever, and just spend a little bit more time reading and reflecting and things like that. And I do some fun reading too, but I usually pick something uh, that encourage me, encourages me spiritually. And so for this year, um, the past month of January, I've been reading um, a devotional written by my friend and yours too, uh, Rachel. And so one of the chapters is, focuses on identity. And she kind of highlights that comparison uh, is an identity thief. And so now I want to draw attention to just a handful of ways in which comparison negatively affects our identity. There's much more than my little list is, but I just pulled out a few things so that we can get the idea of how uh, damaging and hurtful and harmful and destructive comparison is to understanding our identity in Christ. So comparison is a thief of joy. Comparison robs us of contentment because it creates unhealthy competition. Now, I think there can be healthy competition, but in this case, it's not, because there's this need to constantly prove yourself better or above someone else. And that's just not, that's just not godlike. Comparison destroys confidence, identity, our value, and our worth. Comparison is deceptive. Comparison creates roadblocks. You know, I thought about what a roadblock is, and I bet most of us, you know, this morning has, can think of something in our lives that we never pursued or became or didn't do as a result of comparison. You compared your talents, you compared your abilities, you compared your looks, you compared your qualities to someone else. And that roadblock went up and you went a different way. And, you know, we can apply this spiritually, of course, as well. There are spiritual roadblocks that keep us from what God has for us. And in your spiritual walk, uh, you know, I want us to ask ourselves this morning, in your own spiritual walk, however long it's been, short or long, in the middle of it, I want us to ask ourselves, 
what roadblocks has comparison created? Because we're broken people, even inside of the church, although the Lord has given us a hope to yearn for and strive for um, through his spirit and his transforming power. But there's still road, spiritual roadblocks that go up in church and are created in church. And so what are some this morning? What promises of God have you omitted yourself from as a result of comparing yourself to someone else spiritually? Because we don't want to allow comparison to steal what God has for us. Amen? And God's word and the promises in it is for all. And there's no exceptions to that. But comparison can also be useful. I found this helpful kind of to have side by side uh, in Rachel's chapter because comparison can serve a purpose when making decisions between things. Which car to buy? What color paint to, to put on the walls? To have four walls or 15 walls? Or how many walls do we have? 13 walls, 15. You know, it helps us. Um, finding the most inexpensive way to travel to a destination, comparing prices, flights or driving. So comparison can be useful when it's comparing the value of things. Because without comparison, some of us can't make decisions, like me. I'm an indecisive person. It drives most people crazy. Um, you know, yeah, well, Arash isn't decisive either, so we really got some problems. It helps me be more decisive, actually. When you're with another indecisive person, you're like, fine, 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 I'll make the decision. Um, so, but when it comes to people... Comparison can destroy the image that we were made in. And as recorded in Genesis 1 and 27, our main uh, scripture this morning, God established the value and the worth of all humanity when he made us in his image. And God doesn't change, that's scripture, and your value and worth to him is certain, uh, not because of who we are, you know, not because of who you are or who I am, but because of who he is. And because God cannot change nothing, you know, not, not even sin, the worst of the worst sin, if that's how we think of sin. There's worse sins and there's not as bad sins. Even, it's all sin. But nothing, not even sin, can change God's mind about how much he values us and how much we are worth to him. Scripture says we've all sinned and fallen short, um, but God made a way for us to be redeemed back to himself, and we know that as the plan of salvation this morning. You know, last week our sermon, um, I believe it was Brother Desi preached it, was about repentance and you know, how we overcomplicate a simple act of repentance, and you know, all it requires is that we turn away from living unto the world and turn towards a life that is unto God and pleases God. It's really just as simple as that. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 says that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Amen? The old life is gone. 
and a new life has begun. And the way that we become a new creation is in Christ is if we compare ourselves to his word. No one else's word. If we compare ourselves, our lives, what pleases God, what doesn't please God. It's in the word of God. And we can be that new creation in Christ. The Lord desires that we, that we strive for that, that we know that that's something he wants all of us to partake in, is to find that new creation in him. And the way we do that is comparing ourselves to the word of God, using that mirror of scripture. So I, do we have the picture of me and my sister? So most of you know, you know, sitting here today, most of you know that I'm an identical twin. And um, nobody knows comparison better than an identical twin, okay? Now, we enjoy being twins. It has not been a hard road for us, like, no. But comparison is, is, is you know, it's a familiar friend to identical twins, because the common perception of identical twins is that it's cute and fun. Matching outfits, matching interests, uh, saying things at the same time, people just love that. Um, you know, these, things, these kinds of things are cute. You know, it's a perception, but only until a certain age. <laughs> you know, growing up, everybody tells you they wish they were a twin. Oh, and I'm focusing on identical today just because of, you know, identical being so the same. You know, being seen as one is what I'm saying. So, you know, people it, growing up express this desire to be an identical twin. Oh, it would be so fun, but only until a certain age. Because after a certain age, the perception changes. And then if we're two alike, we risk losing our individuality in the eyes of people. And, and, and it is possible to lose your identity in someone. And it seems more of a concern, though, for identical twins. And at some point, the sameness that was once cute now makes people uncomfortable. They're just, they just don't know how, they don't know what to do with you because there's two. I don't know what to do. Who do I talk to? I don't, know who, I don't know who I'm talking to. So it makes them uncomfortable, but it's cute when you were little. Like, look at the two little, they're going, look at the girls. It's always the girls. My brother never knew our names. He just called us the girls. <laughs> but then, if we're not enough alike, it's disappointing. We're disappointing everybody because we're wasting the fact that we are identical twins. You, just, you see how twins just can't catch a break from a perception of others that, you know, it's a constant comparison. So this comparison trap is what we're calling it, the comparison trap, is a result of the fact that identical twins are often perceived as two halves to a whole. Movies and stories often play into this comparison trap this, by portraying twins as opposites. So if one is good, the other one's evil. If one is nice, the other one's naughty. If one is smart, the other one's not. If one is, you know, one is more beautiful or good-looking, one is strong, the other one's weak. One is loud, the other one's quiet. Uh, one is outgoing, the other one's shy. You know, if one likes math, the other one has to like English, because math is taken, apparently, all of math. <laughs> You know, and so on. So you get my, my point here. Two halves to a whole. And as an identical twin, 
you know, we're constantly always compared to someone else, to one another. And my sister and I have never been competitive towards one another. You know, fortunately, our family growing up didn't uh, compare us in that way. But what our family spared us from, you know, they couldn't protect us from the sting of the perception of other people at times. You know, it's, it's that broken image that we've been talking about that only leaves you with pieces of the truth at best. Amen? So now my sister and I have learned some things about ourselves. We're unique as a, as a set because, you know, you can't deny you're a twin. You're a twin. So we're unique as a set, but we're also uniquely individuals. And she doesn't reflect one half of God's image, and neither do I. You know, we're both created to reflect his image, and God sees us as whole individuals, as he does each one of us. So there's a psalm, I think it's Psalm 139. It's, it's uh, one of the most more common psalms that are um, quoted, and it's in songs and things like that. And it, it's that psalm that says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And he formed each one of us in our mother's womb from the inside out, and he knows us so intimately from the inside out. You know, only God can create, just think about this. I know this is kind of, this is kind of cool. Only God can create two whole beings from what started as one whole being. Because you know how identical twins happen. One little egg that was whole, that was a person, splits into two. This is my mom on our birthday every year. She just does this. That one little egg splits into two. And one little whole egg creates two whole people. And that doesn't make science, you know, mathematical sense. How does one create two without it being half? You know what I'm saying? You guys ever think about that? I thought about that. So it doesn't make mathematical sense, and science can't quite explain it, but that's what makes it a miracle of God. Each of us are a miracle of God, miracle from God. But, you know, I know this morning you don't have to be uh, an identical twin to know what I'm talking about. Comparison, this comparison trap uh, and its effect on our identity, the negative effect on our identity, is really stranger to no one. But I want to now turn to an example in Scripture. Um, Let's turn together to the story of the Samaritan woman the woman at the well, one of my favorite passages here in in, uh, Scripture, found in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. I'm not going to read the whole chapter this morning, but I do want to summarize some of what's going on briefly before we land in verses 19 through 26. That's going to be my focus today. So in the first few verses, we know that Uh, Scripture tells us that Jesus has separated from his disciples. He was with them having uh, performed some, um, I believe it was healings and miracles. And so he separates from his disciples after having been with them. And his next destination is Galilee. But he decides to make a stop in a Samaritan town along the way that Jesus was a Jew that most Jews avoided 
because Jews were not welcome in it. And Jesus, being a Jew, knew the history between the Samaritans and the Jewish people, and that they avoided each other at all costs. The relationship was not good. But the scripture says that Jesus, even though he knew of this tension between the groups, Jesus needed to go through Samaria. And so Jesus goes to a well where he meets a woman that has come to draw water, and he asks her for a drink. Um, a big chunk of this chapter, uh, verses 7 through 26, records this dialogue that happens between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, so I'm going to read, uh, starting, I'm going to read a couple verses and then a couple verses, and then we'll jump down to a few verses. Um, I'm going to read verses 9 through 10. The woman was surprised. So Jesus, again, he's met a woman at the well. He asked her for a drink. So the woman was surprised, for, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. So I'm... I want us to kind of see, you know, what I'm talking about today, about being a twin and this comparison. Here we see a comparison trap at work. This woman's identity was affected by this old, you know, conflict between the ancestors, the Samaritans and the Jews. And she knows that this kind of exchange between her and Jesus that's happening right now is, is, is wrong. It's, it's because she knows her rightful place as a Samaritan, which was a, a half-Jew, automatically made her status lower than a Jew. So why is this Jewish man asking her for something? So I'm going to read uh, verses 11 through 14. She probes Jesus a little further. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Verse 13, Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. When Jesus said this, it really got her attention. When he said, uh, the water I give, you'll never be thirsty again. That got her attention. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Verse 15, the woman says, Please, sir, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. So, this, ex this exchange, this interaction that just went on, before this woman understood what Jesus really meant by living water, she was already desperate for his offer. Her assumption was that if she had that water that he was offering, she was guaranteed to never thirst again. And if she didn't thirst again, she'd never need water again. And that guaranteed that she would never have to show her face again publicly to draw water from the well. She could just disappear. 
because of someone who had been outcasted from an entire society because of their perceptions of her and their harsh judgment, her worth had been devalued to nothing. What she did not yet grasp was that Jesus was, in fact, offering her freedom. But it didn't require a disappearing act to get it. In fact, he wasn't going to change anything about the community that she lived in. Uh, He was preparing to reveal to her who he was as the Messiah and the Savior of the world, and we're going to read that in just a minute, so that she, she could herself see herself through the eyes of God. And, you know, I just thought this is what the gospel message is all about, that if it can set us free from anything, why not the trap of comparison? So let's skip down. I'm going to skip down to verses 19 through 26. Reading in verse 19, Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? While we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Okay, remember that verse. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know, know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, and indeed it is now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. To those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So here Jesus' response to the woman perfectly drives home this problem with comparison. We, just like the, woman, the Samaritan woman did, you know, well, whose worship is, is worthy on what mountain, from what mountain? And we do the same thing. We, we place importance on things that God doesn't. And Jesus makes clear with his response to the woman's question, he makes that clear. On what mountain one worships, it's, that's not what's important. Jesus said what's of real importance is those who will worship God in spirit and in truth. And our worship pleases God when we believe his word. Amen. And then here we're going to read the last two verses I want to read today, verses 25 and 26. The real punch is delivered here. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. So here Jesus just revealed to this Samaritan woman that he is indeed the Messiah. And the significance in this exchange lies in the fact that not only did Jesus reveal the greatest message ever known to a woman, but she was a Samaritan woman. And to add to that, a couple verses back, we didn't read in verses 16 through 18, Jesus calls out this, uh, calls out this woman's past sins. As have, is a woman who's had multiple husbands, and he makes it clear that he knows she's presently also living in sin with a man to whom she's not married. And yet Jesus revealed to this sinner 
and to the societal outcasts that he is the Messiah. But in anybody else's opinion, in anybody else's opinion in her community, she wasn't worthy to know what Jesus told her, including Jesus' disciples. Verses 27 through 34 records another dialogue, and this time between Jesus and his disciples after they returned from getting some food. So up until now in the chapter, Jesus had been alone with the Samaritan woman at the well. But even Jesus' disciples fell into the comparison trap, asking Jesus why he was speaking to this kind of woman. They thought so lowly of her that they thought it was foolish that Jesus had detoured from them, missing out on a Peter wrap for lunch, just to go speak to this woman. They thought that eating a Peter wrap was time better spent than speaking to a, a woman like her. So they valued, thank you, Lil. They valued nourishment more than this woman's value and worth. Um, so, you know, talk about wreaking havoc on somebody's sense of identity. Of course, Jesus very quickly made it clear to his disciples how wrong they were because Jesus said he was about his father's business. And the Samaritan woman was created in the image of God just as much as any of us are here today. And that's the story that Jesus shared with her that day, and that's what changed her life. You know, God shares his story with us through his word, through the word of God, through the Bible. But what made it so life-changing for this Samaritan woman was that she believed his words. And that's what I want to challenge us to do this morning, to believe the word of God, because it will change your life. Amen? I know there's people in here, the word of God, if it hadn't been for the word, where would we be? The Samaritan woman's story ends with her returning to her village and sharing what Jesus had told her with this community that just a few verses earlier she wanted to completely disappear from. So no matter what your story of brokenness is, Genesis 1 and 27 is the story that unites all of us. If you're human, the word of God was written for you. Anybody not human here today? Okay, just want to make, you know, it's 2020, anything can happen. Um, but we really do simply have to believe it. We have to believe the words, a word of God is for us and applies to our lives. You know, I'm certain that the Samaritan woman had to remind herself that she was made in the image of God from time to time. You know, to keep from falling back into that comparison trap. Um, just as I will always have to work on working against the perceptions of being an identical twin. And there's comparisons that you have to work against, you know. This is a lifelong thing. Um, and we all have comparisons that we have to overcome. Placing our faith in God and believing his word requires a daily renewal of our minds. All of us have been a part of or fallen into the comparison trap. It's a result of the broken world. But with, an, with each effort to accept the word of God, we get closer to what God has always intended for us. And by the way, this is not only for ourselves. 
It applies to our neighbor, you know, the people around us who are also made in the image of God and are also created to reflect his image. Amen. James 3 and 9 says to uh, basically to attack a person is to attack the image of God. It says sometimes it, meaning our tongues, sometimes our tongues praise our Lord and Father and sometimes it curses those who've been made in the image of God. I'm coming to a close here. Can you display my title for me one more time? So in the end, if there's anything that I want us to take away and remember today, it's the sentence you see behind me. Can we say it together one more time? I am who God knows I am. We are not a culmination of what other people think of us, but how easily we receive and internalize their perceptions. And, you know, I just wonder if only we could receive God's perspective as easily this morning. So the thought and question I leave with you this morning is what image are you reflecting? Because it matters. Your identity, our identity, and our value and worth was established by God on the sixth day of creation. And we were created to reflect God's nature, and that's pleasing to God. Genesis 1 and 27 proves that God always intended better for us than what our brokenness and sin has to offer us. At this time, I'd like to just go ahead and open the altars. If you're more comfortable where you are in your seat to find a place to just spend some time talking to God, you may come up here if you'd like to have you know, fewer distractions, you come up here and pray, or you can pray in your seat, wherever you're comfortable. But I would like each of us to just take some time. You know, for some of us this morning, perhaps we've never really had an opportunity to be made new in Christ. Where to start is what you might be asking. All you have to do is put your faith in God, put your confidence in God, because he knows who you are.